Bay. And please stay tuned for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover Open Book, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, and I will be here for the next half hour talking about film. You know, I like to focus on documentaries because I guess they are having a a resurgence right now, very popular. But uh, there's something about trying to investigate a story and really understand what's happening underneath it. Uh, So with me today... Uh, I'm joined by Amir Sultani, who's going to engage in this kind of <laughs> dialogue with me. Uh, over the past while, he shot a film entitled Dogtown Redemption. It's an Oakland story, which I always really like focusing on, but it also really is about a national debate. It documents the experience of three recyclers who... Uh, are the people who have the shopping carts who go by your house early in the morning on uh, recycling day, pick up recycling, take it to a recycling place, get money for it, and this is their cash economy. So uh, why don't I introduce Amir. Are you there, Amir? Hi, Rena. Yes. Okay. So Amir Sultani is the producer and co-director of this film, Dogtown Redemption. He's an Iranian-American human rights activist, and he's worked in journalism, philanthropy, and business. He's the author of Zahra's Paradise, a New York Times bestselling graphic novel on Iran's 2009 protests. And Dogtown Redemption is his first documentary film. Welcome to KPFA. Thank you very much, Raina. Thank you for uh, having a show about Dogtown. Well, you know, I when I watched the film the first time, I was really inspired. The first thing is that I have the experience, like many of us, that, you know, uh, on my day for uh, garbage pickup, there's always people sort of going by, starting maybe at around 3 in the morning, trying to um, get my bottles and cans. And I realized that I felt kind of mixed about it. Uh, on one hand, I thought, this is really a good idea because this is how they're making a living. And on the other, I just felt concerned about homelessness and why aren't there other services in place so that they don't need to do this. Mm-hmm. So um, why don't we start with what inspired you to investigate this story? So like many um, people who live in uh, the Bay Area and Berkeley and Oakland, um, I was actually living in West Oakland at my brother's place. I just moved in. And I noticed that every day, uh, whenever we would put the trash out, uh, people would be coming by and going rummaging through the trash. And it wasn't just one person doing it. It was just you know, countless people coming and um, digging through the trash. And there was something very... Um, painful about um there's something very painful about sort of seeing fellow americans digging through my trash for um you know some sort of sustenance um and it was strange because there was this sort of i was behind the walls of my house and they were on the street and there was no communication so eventually i walked out and um, met a few of the um recyclers 
and that led me to Alliance Metals, which was the uh, recycling center where they would be taking all the um, uh, recyclables. And Alliance was kind of like a, really like a Fellini set. I mean, there were so many uh, people there, improbable people is how I describe it. I mean, it was hard to believe that these people were surviving. Some had mental health issues, some had physical injuries, others were very old, uh, some people on wheelchairs, uh, some were clearly addicts. I mean, it was just a whole sort of cross-section of society. But what was fascinating was how productive they were and how how the work seemed to give them so much meaning. And, um, and the recycling center almost seemed to function like a community center for them. So I thought, oh, this is a this is a powerful story. This is a story about, uh, you know, how in fact poor people do survive against all odds. It kind of defied Darwin. You know, we have this theory that you know only the fit survive, but actually the most fragile members of our society also find ways of surviving, and often that requires unbelievable creativity. I mean, you just look at the size of their shopping carts or the variety of ways in which people would bring in their material and it was just stunning um so i thought okay let's get a camera and tell this story now you hadn't made a film before so uh, this is kind of a difficult film to make as a first film it was and i think <laughs> the blessing of it was that i hadn't made another film before and i had no idea what I was getting into. I think now, eight years after eight years of filming and editing and so on, now I know what it takes to make a film, but I didn't then. It was just sort of a, a deep uh, passion for the story. And, um, and I was also very fortunate because I started uh, the film with a uh, sort of a mentor. His name was Mike Siv, who really showed me what you can do with a camera. And then um, uh, my co-director, Chiro Wimbush, joined, and he was really phenomenal. And um, a lot of the um, heavy lifting of the film was actually his. I was, I was really interested in the people and the story and the relationships. Um, but, but to, you know, making a film like this required uh, a lot of stealth. And um, so you really, you know, with film, I think, especially with documentary film, it truly is the, the idea that it takes a village to make it because at every step and stage of the process, um, you really depend on so many, so many other people. We had a phenomenal editor, uh, Manuel Tsingaris, who came in at the very end, and he really helped put the story together. And then uh, another person comes in, uh, Denise Esmejo came in to help with the post-production and the distribution and outreach. I mean, it, it really is breathtaking how much goes into a, into a film. Uh, the ultimate contribution, though, really was that of the recyclers. I mean, they allowed us into their lives, and they shared more um, and in a, with a generosity that's just unbelievable. So in the final film, you focus on three of the recyclers, but I'm sure you must have had to follow others in order to either whittle it down to these three or so many things happen to um, people who are living on the street. I would I would want to make sure that you had enough people to follow in case something happened. So how did you choose the people initially um, and to get a sort of a breadth of character and then what happened over the course of filming 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question. In a way, you don't choose your characters. They choose you, you know. Um, I first met Landon when he was um, sleeping outside the recycling center. It was around midnight, and I went and sat down next to him, and we just started talking. Uh, Landon's one of the main characters in our story, and um, and... We just, the conversation went on for hours, and I was completely mesmerized by his voice and uh, the depth of his perspective on the world. And, um, you know, he was explaining to me, he just explaining, just, just bringing that world to life for me. So, in a way, Landon made the film, and then there was Jason, um, Jason Witt, who we call him the Olympic Titan of recycling because he could carry, you know, almost a ton of recycling on a shopping cart. And Jason would sort of tell us about what it takes. To, you know, if you try to push a shopping cart, it looks easy, but it's actually very complex because you have to, it's kind of like, a, you know, navigating a little boat in the ocean because you, uh, you know, you have to balance the shopping cart very carefully for it not to topple. You need to know where to go, when to go, um, where, you know, where to pick the garbage. You've got to make sure you're the first person to arrive there. Um, you've got to be able to read, you know, what's safe and what's not safe. So Jason really also just opened our eyes to the economics of it and the complexity of it. And so the more the more they took us in, the more we learned. Um, there were other recyclers that we followed. Um, the first recycler that I met was a guy named Jefferson, who was half paralyzed. He was a longshoreman, lived in West Oakland. And um, so he would go through the trash with one hand. And the whole exercise of recycling work for him was also a way of staying healthy. Um, unfortunately, Jeff Jefferson passed away. Um, quite a few people, actually, as we were filming, passed away, which is kind of sad. You, you don't, ex- you, you sort of dread it all the time. And of course, one of the characters in our story was um, Miss Hayokei, who was a, a drummer on the band Polka Side, and she was just exquisite exquisite and um every time we would film every time we'd say goodbye you always wondered would she be there the next time the next day and she was always there over seven years i mean there were periods where i wouldn't hear from her for three weeks and i'd be panicked and then i'd get a call from her or else you know i'd made her memorize my phone number and she would sometimes call me from the hospital or the john george she would constantly be in the mental health system um but in the end, you know, uh, we lost Miss Kay, who was one of the characters in the story. Um, so there was no, there were no guarantees. You just don't know what will happen, and you have to trust in the journey. You know, the, it was very interesting because at the beginning, when each of the characters start talking and their name is on the screen, there was something that was so powerful about that. <clears throat> Rather than them just being the recycler who it was like somebody had taken time to get to know them a little bit mm. thank you that's a very um very sweet of you um i think when you do get to meet people doesn't matter if it's recyclers or whatever the whatever the terrifying group or whatever the anonymous group when you meet people um you the first thing you get to know is their name and that's a that's a 
joy and then they take you on this journey and everybody is a is an ocean of stories and um that was the case with them uh primo levi has this uh, very powerful passage in one of his books which is about a three-year-old who was born in a uh, concentration camp and uh didn't you know didn't have parents didn't have the dignity of a name and you know it's it's really important to know people by name. I think it's part of what makes our communities alive and it's part of what makes us vibrant. Um, so I think, uh, you know, knowing the names really makes a difference, doesn't it? Yes. So you followed these characters and, you know, it seems like uh, all of the ones that you... Um, oh. You have to Sorry, uh, turn off your phone. Yes. Yeah. Um, all the characters that you followed, uh, they had some ups and some downs. So that there are times, like with Jason, who you called the Titan of Recycling, you know, who at some moment is meeting with his um, his son, and it seems like he's getting more together. And then I don't know how much time has gone by. He gets his own apartment with his um, partner and then pretty soon there you can't tell the difference between the outside and the inside the trash is mm-hmm. everywhere and he's um, back to using uh, heroin and things have really fallen apart so did you ever worry about your own safety or worry about the safety of the people that you were filming um no that scene that you're discussing was a scene that Chiro was filming, and it was actually an in- incredibly dangerous and tricky film uh, scene to film. So sometimes when you're filming on the streets, um, really, uh, you just can't predict what's going to come at you. Um, what I think, I, I honestly don't, I, I didn't go into this film thinking about safety. Because I think if you're thinking in terms of safety, you're not necessarily being as curious as you can be. And I almost, I don't know, sometimes if you don't perceive a threat, then the threat diminishes. And I think what helped was, like, when we first started, in a way, a lot of the recyclers were really scared, too, Um and a lot of, and oddly enough, a lot of the neighbors were really scared of the recyclers. The recyclers would often be scared of being seen or being arrested, um, you know, because if you're pushing a shopping cart, the police can arrest you for blocking traffic, for um, possessing, you know, how did you get to, own, you know, have this shopping cart and so on. So the recyclers were very jittery. A lot of them were very nervous about being seen. And then a lot of our, a lot of the neighbors in West Oakland where I lived were also very nervous about the recyclers because they thought, you know, these are scavengers. They're going through your, your, you know, through your trash. They, they are, they're potentially thieves. They're potentially addicts and so on. So, you know, that chasm of fear prevented a kind of deep communication that we needed as a community. Um, so, so when we went into the recyclers, one of the things that really helps is that when people just get to know you over time, you're just there, um, you become a part of them and you, you have people watching out for you. So fortunately we, um, we managed to get through this whole film without many, um, without, without any serious, um, serious problems. We're speaking. Yeah, I mean, I was 
always worried about Jason and always worried about Landon. I mean, and they were under threat. I mean, uh, Landon got assaulted by a bunch of, I mean, the um, number, you know, the homeless in a way are easy targets. Everybody can, it's, it's easy to pick on them because they don't have the, they're very vulnerable. I mean, just physically vulnerable. There is no door or lock behind which they can find safety and security. So, um, you know, Landon got assaulted very badly uh, during the film, and Miss Kay was eventually, you know, Miss Kay was killed. I mean, somebody tripped on her and then smashed her head against the pavement, and she went into a coma. So, so yeah, you worry about, you know, the more you care about people, the more you worry about their safety, but you also realize that you have limits. And um, Susan Shelton, who's the great friend of of ours and uh you know really a mentor as we were making the film um does a lot of work through the city of Oakland with the homeless and she would always say that you know you have to look at every homeless person as a single as a person there's no there's no gigantic category in which everybody fit and then the other thing she said to us right at the beginning of the film was that you know I trust they're on their journey um I trust they're on their journey and that that echoed throughout as we were making the film that people are on their journey and one has to respect that journey. This is Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan. We're speaking with Amir Satani, whose film Dogtown Redemption is going to have a few screenings in April. Uh, you know, I think that there's been many films that just have focused on issues of the homeless, but you, uh, you also take another angle, which is all their lives converge at the single recycling center in Oakland called Alliance Metals. It's located in West Oakland. And um, as you say in the film that uh, I think there was one year it made six or eight million dollars in the year. But what happens is that there's all these recyclers, um, particularly these homeless people who are coming there and selling cans and bottles and other things. So th- what happens is that there's a huge sort of political economic discussion that's in the film with uh, one side, uh, somebody from uh, Oakland who is saying that this is basically a crime, that he is not taking care of these people. He's He's using them. Uh, Ron Dellums takes the opposite position, saying uh, these are people who are trying to find work, and this is the kind of piecework that's available, and it's good. So you're trying to expand this whole issue about what's happening. Uh, when you were trying to cover all the angles having to do with uh, the economics of this kind of work, uh, I, I can imagine that it could have become a very... Um, organized, structured, uh, didactic representation. So how did you think about how to organize the ideas in a way that would fit with the um, atmosphere of the film? That's, um, that's, uh, that's cool. Um, I, I mean, you can't, you look, go into that recycling center, and in a way it's like the, it's like a commodities exchange. It's like the floor of a commodities place where people are trading plastics, aluminum, and so on. And with the recyclers as the traders. And so, you know, as you would see the price of aluminum or glass go up and down, this is the global economy now. You would literally see these tiny recyclers, these smallest economic agents, having to carry that much more weight 
or travel that much farther during a recession to make the same amount of money. So there was just there was just that. I mean, there was just the you know you couldn't get away from the fact that you know what kept everyone going was the fact that you know matter has a price and a weight and a, and a, and you survive off that. And then of course all this stuff would get crunched in the recycling center, which somebody described once as a you know almost like a modern plantation and get shipped to China. So, you know, there, here's Oakland, this port city, and there's all this economic activity which is all linked. Um, so that was fascinating. And then, you know, then there was this bigger question of, you know, garbage. It was a question of who owns your garbage. Is it, you know, the owner who puts the garbage out? Is it the city? Is it waste management who picks the garbage out? Or is it the recyclers? So some people would say, hey, these recyclers are thieves. They're pirates. They are taking what belongs to waste management or what belongs to the city. And then, you know, there was a guy, a Joe, who was from Food Not Bombs, and saying, look, look, these guys were recycling long before the city came and took over the garbage. And so the garbage, you know, they should they should have a right to the garbage. And it was just amazing. This is, you know, we're in 21st century America, and there was this conversation about, you know, you know who owns the garbage and who owns the trash. And as we were making the film, it all would deepen because there was all this pressure on the city and on the recycling center to shut the recycling center down because a lot of people saw it as this sort of um, pilgrimage site for the poor and as, uh, you know, essentially a place that was financing a local drug economy. Many people would say that. Many of the people that we interviewed said, you know, these are all drug addicts and so on. And yet, at the same time, you could, you know, we would see that, no, this is also, you know, somebody like Miss Kay was not, you know, your biggest drug addict, and she wasn't the biggest, this was what kept her, kept her sane. It was what she had to do with, and, and then another of the characters in our film, Roz, would say, this is my job, this is my profession, it gives me dignity. Jason would say, you know, my girlfriend was a prostitute because of recycling, she doesn't have to do that. So, you know, it was this, different perspectives. And then there was the role of the city of Oakland, which, um, you know, on the one hand, has to respond to complaints. You know, Nancy Nadell would get a lot of complaints about the recycling center. And so there was all this pressure to shut it down. You know, it was industrial. People wanted to protect, you know, housing, this and that. And then there was the question that, you know, so we're shutting down this recycling center that's going to make a lot of people lose their job, if you consider it a job, you know, thousands of people, actually. And at the same time, the city ended up giving waste management a billion-dollar contract, 10-year contract, for trash removal. So, you know, it was just impossible not to see these things. It was impossible not to see a you know, rinky-dinky guy pushing a shopping cart down the street and then the gigantic waste management truck coming by. And for me, the question isn't that, you know, one side is right or one side is wrong, but but the deeper question is how do we negotiate these sort of boundaries of race and class and all of these things in an American city? And because we were following the recyclers, we could actually, you know, they embodied something. You know, uh, Robert Self has written a phenomenal book on the history of uh, race and class in Oakland called American Babylon. 
And you, you know, you read that book and it's, it's like, whoa, it's very deep what's going on here. But we could feel it. We had, we had people who would tell that story. Yeah, and I think that the story is told in a, in a really clear way. Uh, we're speaking with the director of Dogtown Redemption, Amir Sultani, uh, who is both the producer and co-director of this film. Uh, there is a way where, uh, you know, that there's changes that are happening through the course of the film, both in terms of the economy and in terms of what happens to Alliance Metals, which I think is probably really connected to the international trade in terms of metals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, there's change in uh, the different people that you who are figured in the film so Landon Goodwin who you mentioned was the person who got severely beaten up winds up because he happens to be in the hospital next to somebody who's a relative of his yeah uh, basically uh, gets seen by a cousin and then has a choice to leave and um, get clean from drugs and alcohol and totally change his life around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that you said that you first started talking to him at midnight and that you really connected to him and he had a lot of really interesting stories, but uh, did you have any idea that he was going to be somebody who was able, who was going to be able to get out? I mean, that's kind of remarkable. It is. I mean, Landon's, Landon's a giant. I mean, you know, we stumbled on him. But he, you know, he was a pastor before. He was a minister. And so addiction had taken a terrible toll on him and on his life. And he never lost sight of his core identity and his faith and and his goodness and gentleness and kindness. I mean, those things were just, you know, just vintage Landon. And honestly, I think that's what, um, helped him turn things around. And, you know, Landon, his story, virtually all the stories, everything that we looked at, we started sort of thinking we're making a film about poverty. I say this a lot. And we ended up making a film about love. And one of the big things, one of the things that really shifts things, one of the things that helps people or wrecks people is... uh their, their human relationships. And so a lot of the people that you find in the world that we were in, they, they weren't bad people. They were people who were in their own ways coping with trauma, coping with histories of trauma. And one of the forces that helped them break out of that was community. Um, whether that community, in the case of Miss Kay, was through music, in the case of Landon, it was faith, in the case of Jason, it was karate, but it was community. Um, and so, it wasn't that, it, you know, it's exactly what you say, in Landon's case, it was his cousin who connected with him. Um, in Jason's case, it was his love of karate. I mean, here's a kid who was a black belt at the age of 10. Reclaiming a, a sense of self that was deeply uh, violated, and then there was Miss Kay, and Miss Kay, even when she was in a coma, you, if you play music, she would wiggle her toe. I mean, this this was magn. I mean, it was just the beauty of human nature, the passion. Well, um, I I have to say that there must have been. I mean, the, 
listening to how you speak and how it's clear that you're passionate about these people. You know, often there, I know we talk about documentary not being really as um, objective, but there is sort of this kind of subjective caring that kind of comes through. And I, I can't help but wonder if that some of the movement that happened over time um, happened because they were being filmed by someone like you. So I want to um, just acknowledge that. So, Thank you. And, and also being filmed by someone like Chihiro. I mean, right. he had this exquisite presence with, you know, you think of of a cameraman in terms of technology and the camera and things, but really the intimacy is what comes through. Wonderful. So, and Dog, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but we are out of time. Dogtown Redemption, the new film by Amir Sultani and Jiro Wimbush. You can see it Tuesday, April 5th at 7 p.m. at the Roxy in San Francisco, Thursday, April 7th at the San Rafael Film Center in San Rafael, Saturday, April 9th at the New Parkway in Oakland, as well as Sunday the 10th at the New Parkway. If you want more information, you can go to their website, Dogtown Redemption, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Amir. Amir Sultani, Dogtown Redemption. My name is Raina Cowan. Uh, I will be back next month. Thank you so much for listening. Just in time for KPFA's birthday, Amy Goodman is coming to Berkeley to launch her new book, Democracy Now!, 20 years covering the movement changing America. On Sunday, April 17th, Amy will take the stage with her brother and co-author David to present two decades of history-making journalism. That's at the First Congregational Church of Berkeley, 2345 Channing Way, starting at 7.30 p.m. and hosted by me, Brian Edwards Teeker. There's wheelchair access, tickets available in advance through brownpapertickets.com and local independent bookstores, and full details on our website, kpfa.org. It is a very happy birthday to Democracy Now! and to KPFA with Amy Goodman on April 17th. See you there.